Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Mitch Glazer, who runs Chosen People Ministries out of New York City. And uh, it's a ministry uh, that is about uh, outreach to the Jews. And our topic today is part of our World Religion Series on Judaism. We're going to talk about the nature of the Jewish faith and, uh, and, and fit it into the larger slots of all the other religions we've been talking about. So Mitch, uh, thank you for coming and being a part of our, of our podcast. You're welcome. Shalom, Daryl. Shalom. And uh, we'll dive right in, and anyone who's been following the series knows that we basically ask three questions. What is this religion about? Which is actually going to end up being more complicated than in this case than than normal. And then, what causes someone to adhere to this faith? And then, how does the gospel speak into that adherence? So we'll start off with uh, let's let's just talk about the core faith of Judaism as it emerges out of I'm going to call the Hebrew scriptures, um, what we call the Old Testament, and uh, what's basic about uh, the Jewish commitment, and then we'll and then we'll branch out from there. I like to say that Judaism is not a religion of the book, Daryl. It's a religion of the books. Mm-hmm. So the the reason for the plural is that the Bible does provide some foundation for Judaism, and Jewish people have always interact, interacted with the Bible, uh, old, the Old Testament, or the we call it the Tanakh, the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, but it goes far beyond that, and, and, and a lot of this has to do with the history of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So the Jewish people, of course, ended up in Babylon in uh, 586 mm-hmm. BCE, mm-hmm. and uh, then there was a brief return uh, from Babylon of about 50,000, basically under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then uh, uh, over the years, that population in Israel grew, and it again became sort of the, uh, the, the, the focus of, uh, of uh, Jewish life and development. But Babylon, Jewish people became very entrenched. Mm-hmm. And what was important about Babylon is that the Jewish people developed a religious faith without having a temple. Mm-hmm. And without being in the, and without being in the and land. Without being in the land. Yeah. And so many of the laws mm-hmm. in the old, in the Torah, mm-hmm. in the five books of Moses, apply to the land. Um, the year of jubilee mm-hmm. and uh, you know so many other agriculturally based laws. And and so. Th- we, we like to think that, that Judaism sort of developed uh, in Babylon. And then after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, uh, uh, the Jewish people were scattered. There was a sort of a, a regathering mm-hmm. and then a really severe scattering in 132 mm-hmm. AD. Um, and Judaism, for the most part, uh, really developed in in Babylon, mm-hmm. and uh, the document that was produced, there were many documents mm-hmm. produced, but the main document that everybody knows is the Babylonian Talmud. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Talmud is made up of two different core documents, uh, as you know. 
the Mishnah, which mm-hmm. means to repeat, mm-hmm. and uh, those are comments on the five books of Moses. And then the Gemara really are comments on the comments and on the text, and it includes uh, a very important aspect of Judaism called the Agadah, which is basically stories. Mm-hmm. And so they're more stories that teach morality, taught, teach spirituality. And so the Bible is the, is the foundation. But the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Gomorrah basically developed outside of Israel, mostly developed in Babylon, although there was a Jerusalem Talmud as well. But mm-hmm. this was really the primary one and is still the primary one. So, And this is something that happened after the time of Jesus. So we're talking Mishnah, we're talking late second century, uh, and and ta- and uh, Talmud is fifth and sixth century. So we're down the road from the, from the New Testament. The codification mm-hmm. is later, right? And so, but we know that the traditions and are older. the thinking are much older. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so the Mishnah was uh, and the. The Talmud is usually viewed as being finished by the fifth century. Because the view is that that what happened is is that you took the oral tradition as it was, which was dealing with issues in, to some degree that the Bible didn't directly address. The, 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 application, the, application, of the application of the laws in new settings and in new contexts that weren't directly addressed by the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes. And then you had, uh, over the years, many different commentaries on the Bible and on the Mishnah and on the Gemara called Midrashim. Called Mid, well, there were Midrashim, yeah. and then there were, uh, yeah, yeah, and 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 many uh, this responsible right, exactly. responsible literature, which basically was in uh, homilies. There's a whole questions came to the rabbis, yep. and the rabbis sent out their apostles, shlichim, mm-hmm. sent ones. Yeah, yeah, right. Hebrew word. They sent out their emissaries mm-hmm. to the uh, around all around uh, the diaspora. Babylon and Asia Minor and all, all sorts of places. And they were able to uh, give people guidance on how to live. Secondly, along with all of this was the development of the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the synagogue was also critical. And so uh, the synagogue, many people think, developed after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and that's mm-hmm. false. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that there were synagogues in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, mm-hmm. and there were synagogues before, and there were synagogues in Babylon, and there were synagogues throughout Asia Minor. Uh, the Apostle Paul grew up in Tarsus. There were obviously synagogues all over Asia Minor, and if you follow Paul on his missionary journeys, where was the first place he went to? Mm-hmm. The synagogues. He didn't. You know, Paul wrote before the destruction of the temple, and so obviously there were synagogues at that time. And and just to drive the point home, if you go to northern part of Israel today and go to a place called Gamla, Mm -hmm. where you can see the breach of the wall where the Romans uh, entered the city in 67 uh, before the destruction of the temple. One of the first sites you encounter on the other side of that breach is the synagogue, the synagogue in Gaul. Right. So, so, um, so these were in existence, but they were designed to be places where people could gather and worship and be be centers of activity. Uh, and it's natural that they would develop outside the land because of uh, Jews needed a place to Jews gather were outside and, worship, the land. and worship. Yeah, yeah. And and they were and they were also uh, centers of vocation. For mm-hmm. example, the the 
uh, Jewish occupations were broken up into various guilds, mm-hmm. and that helped order the society. Mm-hmm. And, and the guilds were based in the synagogue. Uh, people came to the synagogue to study. People came to the synagogue to encounter other Jewish people, particularly in the, in the diaspora. And people also came to the synagogue to, to worship, obviously, not just on f- Friday and Saturday, but also on the Jewish holidays as well. Some went up to Jerusalem when Jerusalem, the temple was standing, and then afterwards, of course, uh, everything was synagogue-based. So the synagogue is the Judaism that survived the destruction of the temple. Because, because otherwise, Judaism would have, would have struggled. Right. Now, everybody knows that at the time of Jesus, there were two major forms of, of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, uh, Josephus mentions, I think, 24 different kinds of Judaisms mm-hmm. that were there at the time of Christ. And highlights four of them. Right. Yeah. And, and so th- the two biggies, uh-huh. probably, right. were the Pharisees right. and the Sadducees. Right. And they were very different. Mm-hmm. But but here's here's the story that I think is so fascinating. The Sadducees were basically attached to the temple. Mm-hmm. The leaders were Levites. Mm-hmm. They survived on the temple tax. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees were more attached to the synagogue. And they were more attached to uh, studying the Torah. The Sadducees were more attached to the temple and to uh, uh, sacrifice and, and worship in that way. And so with the destruction of the temple came the destruction of the Sadducees. Mm-hmm and the dominance of the Pharisees. So really what we can say is that Judaism uh, branched off after the destruction of the temple, and basically Pharisaic Judaism won the war Mm -hmm. and uh, was last man standing. Now, there were, of course, uh, the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, Mm -hmm. but number one, they were wiped out. Number two, they would have wiped themselves out because they didn't marry. <laughs> yeah, they were separatists. So, and they were separatists, yeah. and, and many were celibate. Right. And so that movement wasn't going to go anywhere. Then there were the zealots. Zealots. Yeah. Well, the zealots, well, they were killed. <laughs> they, they lost. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, there yeah. goes that. And, uh, and so if you read the Mishnah and you read Talmudic literature, you actually see that the Sadducees were portrayed by the victorious Pharisees in now what became Pharisaic edited literature, mm-hmm. religious literature. Right. The Sadducees are portrayed as well, let's just not say, not, not a very good portrayal. Yeah. Okay? Right. And so the Judaism that continued past the destruction of the temple, well, there were only two forms that were left, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. One was Phariseeism, mm-hmm. and the other was another branch that followed Yeshua, Messianic mm-hmm. Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my professors at, at seminary uh, would, would always mention this, that the church was, was a, a combination of first century Judaism and, uh, and Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And, and so really you have two branches. Uh, Messianic Judaism, which basically didn't last a whole lot more than three centuries uh, because of the rising dominance of the Gentile church, Mm -hmm. the legalization of Christianity and all these other things uh, with Constantine and beyond. But Pharisaic Judaism, because it was rooted in the synagogues in the diaspora, kept going and growing. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. That's an overview of the history, and the, and the point, just to pull that all together, is to say that most people think of Judaism as being about the Old Testament, it's about right. far more. Yes, the religion of the books, books. not the religion of the book. Yeah, and, and ritual. Right. A non-temple ritual. Right. So what developed then was uh, um, personal ritual, ritual, and corporate ritual. So, for example, one of the most important corporate, uh, individual personal rituals that has a slight corporate element to it uh, that is seen all the time. So, you know, I live in the mm-hmm. Holy Land, mm-hmm. you know, Brooklyn. Right. Okay? And so we have almost a million Jewish people in my one borough of five boroughs in New York City, and probably a third at least are very Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. And so the Orthodox Jews, and I was raised this that way okay. to some degree. The Orthodox Jews, everybody thinks, wow, they must be very religious. They go to synagogue Friday night and Saturday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Real religious Orthodox Jews always pray three times a day. Mm-hmm. And they're the times, the same time as when we offered sacrifices. Hmm. So it's a, actually a person, it's a ritual temple replacement. Hmm. And so, and they gather with other men. I'm just going to say this from an Orthodox perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and they meet everywhere. They meet in the back of someone's store. They meet. Uh, they meet in a yeshiva, Jewish parochial school. They may meet in a synagogue, but probably, you know, n- not always. Mm-hmm. And so, th- they meet everywhere. They might meet in a home. Uh, and you need ten men to form a prayer meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. The ten men, or however many, uh, will will pray usually for close to a half an hour, mm-hmm. and we would put on our uh, phylacteries, mm-hmm. what we call tefillin, mm-hmm. tefillah from the word prayer, mm-hmm. and you put one on your on your arm, and then you you put one on your on on your head, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and it reminds us of of uh, of the role of the law in our lives. It should be placed on the frontlets of our of mm-hmm. our of our head. And and so we wear uh, these uh, this garb, uh, and then we pray together, hmm. and we do it three times a day. In again, remin- in in remembrance of the temple that was destroyed. We don't view these as sacrifices, mm-hmm. but it's just those were the times of worship. So, and you think about, and and I want to, I'm going to want to shift here in a second to talk about contemporary Judaism, which is something very different, or at least it's more complex. Um, but when you think about it, uh, part of what made Judaism Judaism is one, it was monotheistic in a polytheistic world. It had a single temple as opposed to many temples. Uh, there was a calendar that was associated to it of special feasts that celebrated certain aspects of what made the community the community. Uh, and there were certain practices that separated out uh, Israel from diet, for example, uh, uh, issues of purity and, and impurity that, that made it distinct from, from the, the other religious activity around them. Yes, that's correct. And again, these are all biblically based, mm-hmm. but they are interpreted and applied to and expanded the, and expanded to the yeah. various cultures where which Jewish where Jewish people led. Now, I do think it's important to understand at least one more thing because what we're describing okay. here is is classical Judaism, right, right, right. Okay, and we'll get to the contemporary right. part. But but in classical Judaism, uh, the rabbis developed a defense 
for the authority of the Talmud and what we call oral law, mm-hmm. Torah Balpeh, the mm-hmm. Torah that comes from the from spoken. Mm-hmm. And so according to the and it's a very circular argument mm-hmm. because according to the Talmud, which is trying to find the authority, right, right. Okay. According to the rabbis in the Talmud, when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, he also gave Moses an oral law on how to apply the law. Mm-hmm. And 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 if you asked a very religious Jewish person, well, you know, which is more important? You know, the oral law that tells you how to apply it or the written law which tells you what it is, and they would say, Oh, do you think that God would not tell us how to apply the law he gave us? They'd look at you cross-eyed. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that law, the interpretation of the law, the oral law went to Moses, mm-hmm. and then Moses to the Levites, and then on and on through uh, – uh, it, it sort of had a priestly succession. there's a tradition, if I remember correctly, in a boat that goes through this line of communication that supposedly extends from Moses all the way to the present writing, in effect. <laughs> Yeah, it depends, yeah. and of course, you know, it's like that old uh, Baptist uh, crimson, crims, uh, you know, the crimson thread that uh-huh. runs through uh, the scripture. Uh-huh. You know, even in apostate medieval churches, some Christians find it. Yeah, you, right, right. You know, yeah, and uh, because that was the important thing, and so a lot of modern Jewish sects mm-hmm. uh, want to bolster their own importance of their own view of Judaism, and so they kind of. Create their they own their line. own history, you they know. Add to the line. And but it's 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 very important. Mm-hmm. And so, somebody says, "Well, what's more important to a Jewish person? Uh, the Talmud and the rabbinic writings and the commentaries, or the Bible?" And the answer to that question is yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay? Now, where does the religious ritual come from? Mm-hmm. Well, to some degree, from the Bible, but it couldn't really come from the Bible because, again, we're not in the land and so many of the rituals that are temple-based are impossible to fulfill. Mm -hmm. And so the rabbis have constantly, it's a dynamic, the rabbis have constantly adapted what was in the Bible for all the reasons you just mentioned, purity, calendar, everything else. They adapted it so that everyday Jewish people could, at least in, in our minds, obey God and fulfill the Torah. The interesting thing is is that many of the religions that we've been looking at have this kind of way of dealing with with change and new contexts and the reality that's that's around them that, it, that impacts and produces the differences that we now see when we come into a more contemporary environment. So the next question is, let's talk about contemporary Judaism. And I think the way to ask this question to kind of get our way in, and we're going to be we're probably going to run into a break before we get all the way through this, is um, is Judaism for most Jews today a religion, a set of ethnic practices, or something else? Now, did you say ethnic or ethical? Uh, well, well, ethnic and, and or ethical. I mean, you can add that dimension They're to both. the question. Yeah, both. Okay, the answer to that question is yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's everything. You pull, you start pulling the religious string, all of a sudden the nationalistic or Zionistic or the, um, um, you know, the uh, cultural, um, e- even the foods we eat. I mean, you start you start pulling on one thing, everything starts so you can unraveling. Meet, you could meet a Jewish person who may or may not be all that religious about going to synagogue, if I, for example. That would but, be at least probably outside the Orthodox, that would be over 80%. Okay, so that's a significant group. And, and yet, they would still engage in many of the practices that are associated with uh, being Jewish. This is really important. Okay. Yeah. So if, if, if I drew a circle 
And in that circle, I, I put the things that were important to the formation of a Jewish worldview, mm -hmm. no matter what kind of Jew you were. Mm -hmm. I would put in uh, the re religion. Mm -hmm. I would put in, which would include the Bible and all of the religious elements that come through the Talmud and so on and all the other books. I would also put nationalism, mm -hmm. which is an identification with Israel. I would put in ethics, because oftentimes Jewish people have Jewish ethics that originally came from the Bible and through Jewish literature, but they are. Uh, but the divine element of ethics, like so many other faiths today, is removed, and the ethics remain. Philanthropy, Jewish mm -hmm. philanthropy, Jewish home values. I mean, there are so many wonderful things about Jewish culture and Jewish values that come from the religion and come from the Bible, and most Jews don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you have community. Community is incredibly important. And then you have a, sh like in so many faiths, you have a shared uh, sociology, you have a shared history. And, uh, and so there are many elements that go into the Jewish worldview. Now, in the Jewish religion, there are really only two major parts to it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually simple. Mm -hmm. One is belief and the other is practice. Mm -hmm. Now, for a lot of evangelicals, a lot of Christians, uh, belief is always the most important thing. And when we think about practice, we think about living out the gospel in the way that we treat one another, the way we treat the poor, the way we are stewards of our, uh, of our stuff, and etc. Jewish people, that's not exactly what Jewish people mean by practice. Mm -hmm. So you have belief, which has to do with your view of God, man, the future, the Bible, everything else. But most Jewish people don't spend a lot of time on that. It's not emphasized really in, in, in Judaism. Most Jewish people spend a lot of time on practice. When do you follow the holidays? How do you follow the holidays? Do you keep the Sabbath? What do you do on the Sabbath? What are your daily rituals? And so uh, there's a lot of important things. And I, and I will tell you just, uh, I, I know we'll need to go to a break soon, mm -hmm. but, but one of the important things that Christians need to understand is that the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people is rarely religiously driven. It's most often driven from the Jewish worldview, but not on those religious elements, but mostly on history, community, and some of these elements. There are theological reasons that some of the more theologically astute Jewish people will, will, will throw back on you, the Trinity, the God becoming man, and so on. But most of the rejection of Jesus has to do with the ingrained sociology and worldview of the Jewish people that's not necessarily religious. And most Christians don't understand. A God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. 
me, you mentioned that you grew up as an Orthodox Jew uh, out of an Orthodox home, but there actually are different kinds of Judaism. The, the three that I'm most aware of are Orthodox, which has its own variation and spectrum, then conservative, and then reformed. So let's start there, because when you say Jewish person, it, it, it can come in all shapes and sizes. Right. And remember, we're speaking about those who would identify religiously because most Jewish people today probably would not self-describe as Orthodox, conservative, reform as they did 30 years ago. They'd just say, I'm Jewish. They would say, I'm Jewish, or they might even say, I'm, I'm, I'm religious uh-huh. or I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, But the traditional categories are still very helpful, mm-hmm. and they're the dominant religious uh, forms. Uh, the Orthodox Jews are the most traditional both in belief and practice. Mm-hmm. See how the belief and practice helps mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And so if you tell me that you know somebody who is a practicing Orthodox Jew and they don't wear a yarmulke, I'm going to tell you they're not Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Because whatever they believe, their practice is going to tip you off as to who they really are. And so, and by that, you mean a yarmulke or a covering, at, at where, no matter where they are, right? And not just in the synagogue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They yeah. would wear it all the time. And remember, the, the head covering reminds us that we're submitted to God. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, it's not biblical, of course. Yeah. People say, like to say, why is there a, is the yarmulke in the Bible? Well, no. I mean, yeah. it's not in the Bible, but it's a Jewish tradition. So Orthodox are the most conservative, most traditional. Uh, they are the inheritors of the Pharisaic tradition and uh, most conservative on belief and practice. Then you have conservative Jews mm-hmm. who are not very conservative. That's right. <laughs> uh, we even have a word for those who are more conservative. We call them conservadox. Okay. <laughs> okay? And so, because everything's on a continuum. So right. the conservative Jews would be uh, fairly traditional in belief and fairly traditional in practice. But when it comes to cultural mores, they would be far less traditional than the Orthodox. So uh, you would never have a woman rabbi among the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they made one woman a cantor, you know, who chants Mm -hmm. the prayers, and that was probably an oddball, eccentric, Mm -hmm. marginalized Orthodox. Mm -hmm. But in the conservative movement, and uh, Jewish Theological Seminary is the main place that trains them in New York City, mm-hmm. whereas the Orthodox Yeshiva mm-hmm. University trains mm-hmm. modern Orthodox, but they would be all over the board. Mm. Uh, but the conservative movement uh, would probably be uh, – would have greater respect and reverence for the, for the Bible. They would definitely study the Bible, but they would not fervently believe every word like we do mm-hmm. who hold to inerrancy or the Orthodox who basically hold to a Jewish view of inerrancy. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to practice, uh, Orthodox, uh, conservative Jews would also, again, be scaled down unless they were more conservadox. And uh, so they would go to, they would still have synagogue services Friday night and Saturday morning. They would celebrate all the festivals. Uh, they would do home rituals, you know, if they were a real, really an adherent mm-hmm. to conservative Judaism. But one of the ways they really differ mm-hmm. from the Orthodox Jewish movement today is sociologically and culturally. And so you can have female rabbis. You can also, they are ordaining gay rabbis. Mm. And, and so these are major changes uh, because they're, according to Pew's most recent study of the Jewish faith, there's been a significant drift from those who were orthodox to those who are now conservative. Mm. And part of that drift 
really has to do with the role of women and gender issues and some of these other uh, cultural questions that they're having. Then you have Reform Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, re uh, Reform Jews actually began before conservative Jews. So if Orthodox Jews is sort of the historical flow of Judaism, although it was not named Orthodox until somewhere in the early 18th century, mm -hmm. after the Enlightenment period mm -hmm. uh, in Judaism in Europe. And so Reform Jews, that's pretty early. That's in the 18th century too. And they were a combination of German rationalism and, uh, and Judaism and a real reaction against the, what they felt was the cold, irrelevant austerity uh, of orthodoxy, mm -hmm. services in Hebrew when they really should have been in German or in, in the vernacular. And uh, so Reform Jews would be uh, more like liberal Protestants. Uh, in their in their theology, only Jewish style, mm -hmm. and uh, and their practice, the rabbis, of course, would wear a yarmulke uh, and so on, and they would also have Friday night and Saturday services, uh, but they would be uh, again much more scaled down, particularly on on these. They wouldn't necessarily pray three times a day and and, and all that. Hebrew school to to study for your bar mitzvah might be one day a week instead of the Orthodox, which is four days a week. You know, <laughs> so it's, everything flows less down. intensity. But the cultural mores and mm -hmm. the sociology would even be further mm -hmm. than the conservative, mm -hmm. and so there would be. Uh, they were ordaining uh, women many years ago, and there are a lot of um, of, of gay uh, reform synagogues and ordaining of, of, uh, of gay uh, rabbis. And so they would be much more that way. And politically, uh, the Orthodox Jews would definitely swing to the right. Conservative would be, eh, you know, mm -hmm. reform would definitely swing left. Okay. So that's a, a – oh, and we haven't even talked about just the secular Jew who basically just lives his life. Well, you know, a secular Jew is interesting. Uh, we use the word secular Jew or cultural Jew. Uh, I would say the secular Jew who practices nothing is rare. Mm -hmm. I would say they are definitely there. Mm -hmm. uh, but the more common person, and I'm talking about more uh, traditional Jewish centers uh, like New York, like mm -hmm. Los Angeles, like Chicago, uh, like Boston, um, and it might even be true of uh, of, Tex of Dallas and Houston, mm -hmm. where there are quite a few Jewish people. Mm -hmm. uh, a secular Jew would not necessarily celebrate the holidays, mm -hmm. um, whereas even those who are non-religious would say, I'm religious for a few days of the year. Mm -hmm. And for example, celebrating Passover, mm -hmm. where synagogue attendance is below 20%, celebration of Passover, according to most Jewish surveys, is well over 80%. Hmm. Celebration of Hanukkah is between 70 and 80%. Mm -hmm. um, even though some of these secular Jews and even some of the cultural Jews, depending on whether or not they're intermarried, might celebrate Christmas too. Hmm. But there's uh, – the cultural Jews would definitely have a Jewish sociology. They would remember the worldview. They would have, have a mm -hmm. stronger Jewish worldview based upon community sociology and, and history. And they would have still have very Jewish values and definitely a taste for Jewish food. You know, the one thing that we haven't talked about besides <clears throat> besides diet uh, is is the role of Sabbath. Um, the, um, and I, I take it that if you ran the Sabbath through that spectrum, you would see you would see similar kinds of differences in terms of adherence and, and concern yes. to follow through. You would. Uh, the, 
the lowest on the totem pole are probably the Sabbath mm-hmm. and keeping kosher, mm-hmm. not eating uh, pork or shellfish. Mm-hmm. And according to rabbinic Judaism, separating uh, by a few hours, you're eating milk and meat. And in the more religious homes, having even separate kitchens, separate mm. sinks, mm-hmm. um, in order to make that distinction. Uh, so there, there's those are the more sort of the more extreme, but. To balance that, mm-hmm. even the most secular Jewish person will usually fast on Yom Kippur, the mm. Day of Atonement. Mm. It's just something about it, huh. and and they would and many of cultural Jews will go to synagogue on the specific Jewish high holidays, and almost every one of their families will have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, mm-hmm. depending on who they are, for their kids. Interesting. So, would the two major holidays be? Uh, well, I guess there would be. Th- would there be three? Uh, Atonement, Passover, and uh, Yom Kippur. Would those be the the top three? Well, well those would. Uh, it would be Yom Kippur, uh-huh. uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh-huh. the New Year, mm-hmm. and Passover. Okay. And uh, Tabernacles, of course, in the Orthodox community right. where I live in Brooklyn, it's is a huge. big deal. It's yeah, huge. absolutely. And uh, but among Average Jews, here's the way you tell it. Say, do you take off work mm-hmm. on Yom Kippur? Mm. The answer, r- almost across the board for even the most secular cultural Jews is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, little less, right? maybe. On the first day of Passover, probably no, mm-hmm. but they'll go to a Seder. At least uh, the Seders are usually on the first two nights. They'll usually go mm-hmm. at least on one of the, the nights. But... Even though the Orthodox Jewish community shuts down for Hanukkah and for a number of other festivals, for Purim, the mm-hmm. Feast of Esther, uh, the cultural and secular Jewish people, and even Reformed Jewish people might take a little time off, but not a lot. Okay, so that that gives you a feel for the variety of and the variety of things in Judaism. Let's turn our attention to so adherence. What 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 is the attraction uh, of uh, of a faith? And obviously, there's a variety here because you've got a variety of of, of levels of adherence. Yeah, I mean the the one other group I should mention, just if we're talking about adherence, are the Hasidic Jews. Okay, the Hasidic Jews were sort of a warm, fervent, uh, warm-hearted, fervent uh, adoption of Judaism um, when they felt that European Orthodoxy was cold and austere, hmm. and so you have a lot of joy, you have a lot of dancing, men with men, women with women. And uh, you have Hasidic Judaism is a little more dynastic, mm-hmm. and so we expect the son of the rabbi to be the next rabbi. Uh, they have more authority than the rabbi in mm-hmm. Orthodox Judaism. And, uh, and so I would say adherence uh, among the Hasidic Jews is t- uh, Jewish people are, is total. Mm-hmm. Uh, they adhere to everything they could possibly adhere to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the motivation for adherence is, is they would say is because God said to do it, and we love to do what God wants us to do. So it's an adherence with joy, with with abandon, mm-hmm. you know. And even the way Hasidic Jews pray, very active physically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's the Hebrew word davening, mm-hmm. and and the reason we do that is to involve the body, mind, and soul in prayer. Mm-hmm. There's a Hebrew word for prayer, avodah, which is also one of the Hebrew words for work. Mm-hmm. And so prayer is 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 work, but it's a joyful work. Mm-hmm. But you you really work hard at prayer. 
And uh, I would say the, the Orthodox are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could make a point mm-hmm. on adherence, one of, the, one of the aspects of adherence is, uh, is that is not part of adherence mm-hmm. is personal salvation. Mm. Jews don't do anything to get personal salvation. Mm-hmm. Number one, there's no concept in Judaism at all of original sin. Hmm. So Jewish people do not believe they are incapable in themselves of pleasing God. Jewish people do believe in grace. They believe in covenant, God's covenant loyalty to the Jewish people. But Jewish people do not do the law to get saved. And the reason for that is they don't care about getting saved. Mm-hmm. So there's They're already the people of God. Not, yes, but Yes, um, that's that's true. That, but that's that's a that's a, a corporate sense, okay. Carol. The question is, how do they feel personally? Mm-hmm. Even though we are part of the people of God, if they're, you know, adherent to the Jewish religion in mm-hmm. some form, uh, you, you don't think about that as much. You do think about your personal relationship with God, mm-hmm. and you think about your corporate relationship with God. Uh, but Jewish people do not believe we need to get saved because there's nothing wrong with our being born the first time. Sounds like a little bit of John 3 there, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and so this is really critical. So a lot of Christians have a completely misunderstanding of why Jewish people keep the law. Mm-hmm. Jewish people do not keep the law to get saved. Jewish people keep the law out of joy and out of a desire to simply be obedient. It's Honor part God. of the covenants, just honoring God. Yeah. And uh, but Jewish people are concerned about forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is different. Mm-hmm. So Jewish people do observe Yom Kippur, and I watch even the most secular Jewish person repent and fast on Yom Kippur, even if they don't believe in God, just to play it safe, you know. <laughs> and and there are ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where we believe the books of life and death open, and we have 10 days to make things right between ourselves and between man and God, uh, ourselves and, and, and our fellow man. Uh, but that's to get forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you sort of even have the understanding you're going to get forgiven for things you didn't get forgiven of before. Uh, but it's not for personal salvation. So the adherence either comes from joyful obedience to your role in the covenant or it comes because your mother wants you to, or your father wants you to, or somehow you were raised. Uh, and adherence for those kind of people mm-hmm. who are maybe not Orthodox, maybe definitely not Hasidic, mm-hmm. adherence is spotty. Mm-hmm. So you choose what to be adherent to. Now, the interesting thing about that is, uh, and, and the variation of the adherence question is, of course, the, what makes this attractive. And uh, the, thing, the thing that I've found in being around Jewish people that is very, very attractive is the deep sense of community and connection that people have Absolutely. to one another. Yeah. In, in fact, when the uh, Chabad Lubavitch, who are a Hasidic, the largest Hasidic group or the most modern, the most active, they have almost 8,000 missionaries, Daryl, in mm-hmm. countries all over the globe trying to get Jews to be Hasidic Jews or at least better Jews. When they want to evangelize, they don't start giving you information. They invite you to their home for a Sabbath meal. Hmm. So the path to evangelism for them, and I think Christians can learn a lot from this one, mm-hmm. 
is to come be part of the community. Taste what it's like to be part of a real Jewish family that is adherent to the Torah and see the joy uh, that it gives it gives to you. Mm-hmm. So, th- so I, I think you're, you're right on that one. I, I think community is a driving force, and it's what makes uh, a lot of people uh, enjoy Judaism. Hmm. Now let's let's turn our attention to uh, how the gospel speaks into this. And you've already talked about what I would regard as a hurdle, uh, which is which is one of the things also we've been discovering as we've been moving through various world religions is that the way the religion is set up is open to certain things, but it's also closed to certain things. I mean, the obvious most obvious hurdle is uh, is the person of Jesus. What's said about him? from a Jewish point of view and how that's a challenge to Jewish faith. But the second hurdle is this whole idea of uh, no original sin, so no need for the cross. So you really have a double hit, if I can say it this way. You've got the person of Jesus who's exalted to a level in Christianity that Judaism struggles to pursue. To perceive and, and receive, but then you've got his work, which also doesn't make any sense or much sense to a Jew in some in some ways theologically. Theologically, so so put that together. For, so how does the gospel step into uh, into Judaism? And maybe the way to think about this question is kind of in two parts. Uh, I've complicated it, which is bad, but I'll take a shot. So you've got these hurdles on the one hand, but how do you step into a Jewish mind? What might draw them from where they are to Christianity? Okay. Well, I, th- I think those, it's not complicated. It's a very good way of putting it. Um, I would add one more overarching major objection mm-hmm. to even hearing things that they can object to, mm-hmm. and that is Jewish people are convinced that Christian- Christians have persecuted Jews. To the extent, and just to underscore the point, to the extent that the Holocaust is for many people something that Christians were responsible for in an attempt to annihilate Jews. Yeah, as were the Crusades, as were the pogroms in uh, in. So the history is an issue. I'd say the history is part of the shaping of our identity. Mm-hmm. And so we identify as not Christian, mm-hmm. even if we don't adhere to much of the Jewish religion. And part of that is because we are a persecuted group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the devil had a, an amazing strategy, mm-hmm. you know, and because, I mean, if if you can make the Jewish people, the people that the gospel's to the Jew first, it's, it's salvation is of the Jews, Jesus is Jewish, the Bible's Jewish, mm-hmm. I mean, it, the end time repentance of the Jewish people, I think, brings about the second coming of Christ. I mean, you know, if you could make the Jewish people think that... Jesus is, you know, enemy number one, the chief persecutor and inspirer of persecution of the Jewish people. Then, you know, if, if I was, you know, the devil would win a great victory. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a terrific strategy. Uh, unfortunately, it's worked well, mm-hmm. and and so Christianity is viewed viewed as foreign and hostile. Mm-hmm. And but there's ways to break through that. So I would say the socio-historical objection whereby if a Jew accepts Jesus, they stop being Jewish and go to the side of the enemy. Mm-hmm. I think that's a major, major hurdle. Uh, and the way Along to, with all the community and family pressure that comes with that. Right, because the community and family pressure comes because you've broken a taboo and you're being puni- punished. Right, right. So punishment is part of any 
culture, mm-hmm. right? And so you break a taboo, you pay the price. The worst price is you're out of the community uh, or marginalized or not allowed to marry someone's daughter, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or you're cut yeah. out of the will. Right. Or you lose your fa- job because it's a family business. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a lot of levels of, of punishment. Uh, and then you have the theological issues. Mm-hmm. And so on the theological issues, again, why do I need to get saved if there's nothing wrong with my nature? And then, but also, Jewish people have died because they would not believe that God could become a man. Mm-hmm. And so... Jewish people view that as idolatry. So that's a big hurdle to get over once people have some theological objections. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you have the Trinity, Mm -hmm. the triune nature of God. Mm -hmm. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. Mm -hmm. Right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is interpreted in Judaism as singular, even though the word echad does not mean that. It can mean a composite one. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew word yachid is singular, mm-hmm. but most Jewish people don't know enough Hebrew to make that distinction. <laughs> so this is a, a rallying cry of the Jewish people. God, mm-hmm. God is one. So you can't have an incarnation. You can't have a trinity. Mm-hmm. You don't have salvation because you don't need it, because you, your nature is not fallen. Then there's a real kicker, and that is Jewish people do not believe that the Messiah would die. Why would he die for our sins? First of all, if we're not sinners. And he's a bringer of peace. Then, <laughs> yes, yes. So if the Messiah is only going to come once, then uh-huh. all of the prophecies that Christians view as happening in the second coming are the ones Jewish people view as happening in the first in the only coming. That's right. In the only coming. Therefore, how could Jesus be the Messiah if obviously the world is not at peace? Well, believe it or not, our time is running down, so we don't have any way the to... answer to that is... Okay, good. <laughs> Ready? Love always wins. Mm-hmm. Build relationships, trust, love, show respect for Jewish people. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If you are a Gentile Christian, Jewish people will respect you more if you are fervent and devout about your faith. If they you, get that. If you talk about God, yeah. even if they don't, if you talk yeah. about God, if you talk about the Bible, they will respect you more, not less. The only thing you shouldn't do is say, and you must believe that too, which mm-hmm. most normal evangelicals are not going to say. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is make it so attractive. Don't hide it. Don't mm-hmm. put your light under a bushel. Jewish people aren't going to respect that. But let Jewish people see who you are in Jesus and let them want it. In Romans eleven eleven, Paul said, provoke them or make them jealous. Just be yourself as a Jesus-loving Gentile believer or Jewish believer, and I believe with all my heart that that will have impact on the life of your Jewish friends. Well, Mitch, we thank you for coming in and talking to us about Judaism and Jewish faith faith, and help us with this section of our world religion discussion and having us parse out how how varied Jews are on the one hand and and what the obstacles are in thinking about faith and and then the exhortation to just get in relationships and and love them, love them, love them towards the cross. And a little bit of Isaiah 53 wouldn't hurt. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.